Today we'll be looking at the second part of this mini-series, if you will, looking at church discipline, which is one of the three marks of a true church. So we'll be looking at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. The year is 1642. 1642. Just implant that date in your mind. The town is Boston, before it became the state of Massachusetts. The crowd gathers to witness an official punishment. A young woman has been found guilty of adultery and must wear a scarlet A on her dress as a sign of shame. You'll see her picture from one of the old movies. Why is she wearing the A on her dress as a sign of shame? Because A is a symbol of adultery and affair. Furthermore, she has to stand on the scaffold for three hours, exposed to public humiliation. And after that, she's put in jail. And then following her release from prison, she ends up settling in a cottage at the edge of town. She doesn't want to deal with the shame and the public humiliation and the, the jeers from the crowds. Well, this fictional story was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And in the United States, it used to be regular reading in the schools, and the book is called The Scarlet Letter. Hence, you can see the A being the scarlet letter. Sadly, though, too many unbelievers think this is how church discipline is practiced or should be practiced in our churches. And they see these sort of movies and read these sort of books and and get the idea that this is how church discipline is to be practiced. And sadly, too many believers as well practice church discipline in a similar manner. I've heard some horror stories even from some of you. And I've seen horror stories, so to speak. But is this how we should practice church discipline? Is this a good example, making people standing on scaffolding and, and putting them in prison and putting them through this kind of torture? Well, if you don't know the answer to that, we should ask Jesus. Jesus tells us what to do here in Matthew 18 when it comes to confronting one another in love. Last week we saw that it is our responsibility to lovingly confront one another. Jesus calls you to be your brother's keeper. Jesus calls you to be your sister's keeper. In fact, there's five commands in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Five commands there. It's not an option. You must go. You must tell. You must use words, verbally use words to talk to people and confront them in their sin. We saw how to do that last week. That's in part one. But today I want to start with this question. Why should we confront Why should we confront? Well, remember the context, Jesus is dealing with his disciples' opposition to Jesus himself and his ministry has been mounting, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And so Jesus knew the disciples' sinful nature within them, and so he he actually reminded them of the benefits of loving confrontation here in Matthew 18, verse 15. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So, if we read on, 
verse 16, it says, But if he does not listen, take one or two other, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we see the goal of, hopefully you understand the goal of biblical confrontation. What is the goal of biblical confrontation? The goal of biblical, loving confrontation is restoration. It's restoration. That is the goal. You want to be restored with your brother or sister. You want them to be restored in their relationship and fellowship with God. Unfortunately, confrontation doesn't always work out so well. Unfortunately, I've seen it go to the last step before. And in my experience, when it goes to the last step, it usually doesn't end very well, unfortunately. And we'll look at those steps in just a moment. But what do we do when the sinning brother is unrepentant? If you've gone and you've used words, you've lovingly confronted this brother or sister in Christ about their sin, what do you do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus answers that question in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, If he does not listen, then you need to take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see that in verse 16? That's what Jesus says to do next. And so it's important to understand exactly when the the one or two others are needed. It's not needed in step number one. Okay, step number one, remember verse 15 says, you go alone by yourself. So the one or two are only needed if the one being confronted here is not agreeing about their sin. If they're being unwilling to change and repent of their sin, then you take one or two other people along with you. And so if the one confronting still believes the problem is unresolved, that's when you call in one or two more people. So what roles do the one or two more play? What do they play? What's their part in this process of reconciliation and restoration? Well, Matthew 18 indicates that there's at least two purposes for involving additional people in this process. Number one, we find in verse 16 that the, the first purpose is that in the mouth of Two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That's what Jesus says right there in verse 16. And so this helps us to eliminate the possibility, if you will, of someone being convicted on the basis of a false accusation, which would be easy to do if there was only one person. Uh, The second second purpose for the one or two more is also found in verse 17. And there, they're pictured as attempting to admonish the sinning brother. Why are they doing that? Why are they admonishing? Well, their purpose is to lovingly confront whoever may be at fault. Which, by the way, uh, we we typically think the one doing the confronting is always right. That is a bad assumption. A really bad assumption. Okay? In fact, both people could be sinning. The one confronting could be sinning, and, and we're assuming the one being confronted is sinning, usually. 
But they both could be sinning. And so the one or two more needs to have enough discernment to hopefully see whether or not, what, what the real issue is going on there. And Jay Adams, uh, in his book on the Handbook of Church Discipline, wrote this quote on the screen. He says, The witnesses are not merely witnesses. They are first counselors who seek to reunite the two estranged parties. That is indicated in the words, if he refuses to listen to them. They are pictured as actively participating in the reconciliation process. It is when the refusal takes place, and only then, that they turn into witnesses. They do not appear as witnesses in this informal stage. To whom would they witness? They will become witnesses if and when the matter is formally brought before the church. Paul makes it clear that issues may not be entertained by the church unless witnesses are present. End quote. So, these one or two more witnesses have a vital role to play. What kind of people should the one or two more be? What should they be? What should their character be? Primarily, Well, Jesus doesn't answer that question directly for us here in Matthew 18. But Scripture does tell us that the people involved, of course, need to be, number one, they need to be qualified. Uh, two, they need to be serious about this matter. This isn't a joke. And number three, they need to be objective. Okay, very hard to do that sometimes. But they need to be qualified, serious, and objective. So first, what, what, what kind of people should they be, these witnesses be? Number one, the one or two more should be qualified to counsel both parties and to participate in a restoration process if that's necessary. Well, hopefully it wouldn't be necessary. Hopefully the person would be restored and reconciled uh, in, in the second step, but that's not always the case, of course. Galatians 6.1 is helpful in us thinking about what these people should be like. Look at, look at this. It's on the screen. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Notice Galatians 6 says, it's you who are spiritual should be involved in this process. Spiritual people, what are they like? Well, spiritual people are those who have a working knowledge of the Bible, of course. It's, and in the context, if you back up to the pre- previous chapter, chapter 5, it's those who are empowered by the Spirit, who are walking and living in the Spirit. Those are the ones who are qualified to be these spiritual people who restore in the spirit of gentleness. So the context, you say, well... Well, Galatians 5, here's where it says, okay? Again, it's on the screen for you. Galatians 5, verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the one or two more must also have enough personal integrity before others that they would be credible witnesses to the church if it should move on to the last two steps of the process. 
All right, so they need to be qualified. Number two, those who are asked to help in the process of loving confrontation must also be very serious about their involvement in it. In other words, they need to take it seriously. Their attitude should be one that's recognizing what verse 20 in our passage here is talking about. That you're not alone in this process. Matthew 18, 20 says, there is this special presence of Christ himself in the discussion going on between you and, and your brother or sister in dealing with their sin in this conflict. Verse 20, if you, in case you forget what it says, Jesus says right at the end of verse 20, there am I among them. Verse 20 is not talking about a little prayer meeting. Verse 20 is talking about church discipline. When two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus is in that church discipline process. Number three, the witnesses should be, a, a, be as objective as possible. Now, we're all biased in one way or another, and this is very difficult. So because it's very possible that both of the parties involved here could be wrong... In some way, because people are tempted to respond wrongly when they're confronted, it's, it, 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 it'd be ideal to take one or two Christians who, who would be friends of the offender. And so if that is not possible, then you should at least try to take people who are not your own close friends. Otherwise, imagine being in that situation where you're getting confronted by three Three people coming to you and confronting you about your sin, and they're all close buddies. They're friends. And you don't really know them that well. Imagine what you're going to feel like. You're going to feel like you're getting ganged up on, right? I'm going to get a spiritual beating here is what you're going to feel like. So that, that's not real helpful. Our next question is this. What are the steps of church discipline and restoration? Remember, the goal is restoration. So what is, what is the process? If you have to keep going through these steps, what are the steps? Well, we've already talked about some of these, but let me remind you the first ones here. The first step is private conversation. Jesus commands us to go and tell this brother or sister his fault, his sin. And the fault there, just general sin. And so most problems in the church... Uh, can be solved when we're faithfully applying that principle. Remember, I said, I said last week that church discipline should be taking place regularly. It should be happening every week in our church. Every week. That's, our church constitution calls that formative discipline. Formative discipline is this first part. It should be taking place all the time where we're going to one another and helping one another. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes others need to become involved, though, when, when the, the effort here fails. When step number one fails, we've got to move on to step number two, which is private confirmation. Jesus says in verse 16 to take one or two others. Again, that's a command. You don't get to pick or choose whether you want to do this. You can't say, well, I don't like this. This... You know, I think this is unloving, or whatever your excuse is, Jesus commands you to do this. Even if you don't want to do it, take one or two others. The words refuse to listen to them 
are indicating that the offender here has shown a stubborn unwillingness to deal with the problem. They're unwilling to repent. They're not, not seeing it the way God sees it. And so this unfortunate refusal takes place in private confrontations. And if it does, Jesus actually commands us here, tell it to the church. The ecclesia is the Greek word there. He's commanding us to tell it to the church. And so if we were to drop the issue at stage number two, then we are living in disobedience to God. We would be disobeying Christ if we don't proceed on to step number three, which is public confrontation. Public confrontation. Verse 17, Jesus, again, commands us, tell it to the church. The idea is there is you expose the sinner. The congregation, the entire congregation, should know who the sinner is. Now, Somebody here might be thinking, hey, you know, this kind of public exposure to the whole congregation... You know, it's just, it's only in Matthew 18, and so therefore it's really not necessary. It's really not that important. And if you're thinking that way, i got news for you. Because here, i put some, some scripture references up here. We're not going to read these. But I, I want you to know it's found throughout the New Testament. The public confrontation is found throughout the New Testament. It is not an isolated passage in Matthew 18, as if we need anything else. It's found throughout the New Testament. So step number three is public confrontation. And if the sinner does not repent of their sin, then the last step takes place, which is public condemnation. Verse 17, Jesus says, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And the idea there is, is the person is excluded. This sinner who refuses to repent is excluded from the fellowship of the church. And, by the way, that doesn't take place in step number one, okay, which I've seen happen, unfortunately. They didn't go through the other steps, so real church discipline never took place. If you skip the other steps and go to step number four. Uh, one author said this, in regards to public condemnation, I quote, As a result of exclusion, As a result of exclusion, the sinner is handed over to Satan. He is delivered over to experience the full consequences of his immoral or rebellious behavior. He will be abandoned to discover, like the prodigal, that sin does not permanently satisfy. It ultimately defiles, destroys, and ruins his life. A church should never subsidize sinning saints. It is not to be a place that coddles the prodigal, emotionally, spiritually, or physically. God has uniquely designed discipline to be a time of warning and awakening. Have you ever thought about the fact that prodigals come to their senses in the pig pen? That is where they come to the end of their resources. Oftentimes, it's only then that they long for restoration to the father and his family. But if a church never withdraws its support, encouragement, and fellowship from the unrepentant sinner, it has effectively acted as a hindrance to the discipline of Christ. End quote. That's from Stephen Davies' book, In Pursuit of Prodigals. 
you can see the imagery there coming from Jesus' story where he talked about the prodigal son who ran away from his father and his family. And he did come to his senses when he was in the pig pen, eating pig food. And that's one of the things that can happen in this, in this last stage of public condemnation. If we don't do this, then we're not obeying Christ. Well, what are the benefits of church discipline? What are the benefits of church discipline? Frankly, some people just don't want to do it. And they're not going to do it unless they see the benefits. I hope that's not you, but if it is, I'm going to give you some benefits of why you need to do this. Well, the most important reason that every church should practice church discipline is out of obedience to the Word of God. Jesus commands us to do this. We don't need any other reasons. But I'm going to give you some more benefits needlessly. Number one, first, telling the church is good for those who sin. Telling the church is good for those who sin. Without this increased confrontation going all the way to stage number four, they're probably not going to change. They're just going to continue to labor under the guilt of their sin. They're going to be under the chastening hand of God. But the the pressure from the church body was designed by God and, and for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. So they would want forgiveness for their sin. Also, because their previous network of accountability was apparently not sufficient, which is why they were sinning, there's this, there, there is this greater body, if you will, a, a body of accountability, which is the church, that is supposed to bear on them as they live in unrepentant sin. They're going to need specialized help. They're going to need greater accountability. That's one of the reasons why the the body as a whole needs to know about the sinner. So widening the confrontation to the whole body will allow the whole body to participate in the restoration process. So it's good for that reason. Number two, telling the church is good for the church. So it's, it's good for the sinner, but it's, it's good for the church. And so in this process, the whole congregation is then challenged toward personal purity in their own life. I mean, I, it, this wasn't necessarily church discipline, but you remember in Acts when Ananias and Sapphira came and they lied about what they were giving and they were killed on the spot? Well, that's... You know, according to uh, those who write books on marketing the church, they would say that's a real bad way to market the church. <laughs> but you know what happened? It says that, that people feared. And it also says the church grew. But in the process, the church was purified. When God kills people as a result of their sin, the church is purified. And when the church carries out these various steps of church discipline, the church is purified. It's good for the church. In fact, look what 1 Timothy 5.20 says. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of how many people, does it say? What does it say? What does it say? Everybody? Is it up there? Did I not put it up there? Oh, sorry. 
What does it say? You're to rebuke them in the presence of all. It says all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. God wants His church to be pure. His church is the bride of Christ. Do you think Jesus wants to marry an impure bride? Of course not. He wants his bride to be pure. Number three, what's the third benefit? Pure doctrine is protected. Pure doctrine is protected. One one of the things that uh, we should be disciplining one another over is heresy, false teaching, false doctrine. If we don't do that, that's that's how false doctrine gets into the church. And as Paul mentioned in the book of Acts, it's, even wolves will, who are you know, kind of dressed up in sheep's clothing will arise from within us and will devour the flock. If we're not vigilant, that can easily happen. But look what Titus says, chapter 3, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. It's pretty serious stuff. Interestingly enough, the word division. The word division is a, uh, we, we get our English word heresy from the Greek word that's used for division there. And for, heresy is very, sounds very similar in Greek. And so a person who is, who is stirring up the flock, dividing the flock, and teaching false doctrine and heresy is to be warned once, and then twice, and then you cut the person off. He, he doesn't even go through all four stages of church discipline. That's how serious God takes those people. They're not even to be taken all through four steps. You just get rid of the person. You have nothing more to do with him. Why? Because pure doctrine needs to be protected. It's precious. Number four, God is honored through church discipline. We need to do this to honor God. A holy God is to be introduced to the world by a people who are pursuing holy living. So when the church confronts sin, what it's doing is it's actually protecting the reputation of God. We want to give the right impression of God to the world around us and to one another. God's holy. He's totally unique and distinct and separate from His creation. He doesn't coddle sin. He does not overlook sin. He deals with sin. And sin's not allowed into His presence. And so, because of that, He calls us to be holy since He is holy. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 14, which says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why are you to be holy? So you can look good amongst yourselves? Is is that why you do it? No. God says you're to be holy because he's holy. You're to be like him. Unique, set apart from sin unto him. So those are some reasons and benefits, if you will, why we should perform church discipline. My next question for you is this. What do we do 
when a sinning brother or sister will not listen to the church. You know, if we've gone through these, these various stages of church discipline and the person is still not listening, in, in listening there is the idea is unrepentant, what next? What do we do next? Well, number one, Jesus says you treat the excluded person as an unbeliever. That's in verse 17. You treat them as an unbeliever. Jesus says you let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You treat them as an unbeliever. Uh, Gentile and tax collector in in Jesus' day, you have to understand uh, a little bit of a cultural barrier here. Gentiles and tax collectors were not loved by the Jews. In fact, they were hated by the Jews. They were excluded from their society. Those were the kinds of people with whom the Jews had no social and no religious interaction. If a Gentile or a tax collector dared to, to try to walk into the temple they would be driven out or killed. That's how they would treat them. They were not allowed. Not allowed at all. They were social, socially excluded. In fact, some Jews would try to kill them, you know, if they were walking around town. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore them. I'm not, and Jesus is not suggesting you go and kill these people either. But you have to understand how, how the people of Jesus' day looked at Gentiles and tax collectors doesn't mean you ignore them. It means we, we associate with them for the purpose of calling them to repentance and restoration. It's not to befriend them, just to be buddy-buddy, to be intimate you know, with them. No, that's not the purpose. The purpose is every time you're with them, you're to be calling them to repentance. So either they're going to stop being friends with you, <laughs> or they're going to be restored. That's what's going to happen. They're, they're, they're not going to keep tolerating people coming to them and saying, hey, you sinned, brother or sister. You know, you need to get right with God or what, whatever you end up saying to them. They're not going to tolerate that for long. Number two, put the wayward one out of the fellowship of the church. So you treat them as an unbeliever, and then they're to be put out of the fellowship of the church if, if they proceed to this last stage. Look what... 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, it says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the, with the tradition that you receive from us. Paul says there, keep away from a brother who's being lazy, in this case. Just being lazy. In this case, the sin is idleness they're being lazy they're not working <laughs> and that person is to be put out of the fellowship of the church so your relationships no longer going to be close your relationship is not an intimate one it's a relationship that should be guarded you should you should think of this relationship as an evangelistic relationship in other words you need to think of this person as an unbeliever what do you do with unbelievers you evangelize them. You tell them about Christ and His work for them. So your encounters with the unrepentant one are, will maintain this object, uh, in objectivity, if you will. You're calling him or her back into fellowship with Christ. Number three, if they're a church member, 
They need to be removed from the membership with a public announcement. Fortunately, I haven't had to do this in the last six years, but if, if we do, uh, by, God, by God's grace, this, this will happen. A public announcement will be made. So if you see somebody go through all four stages, you should expect that. You should be calling for that from the leadership of the church. Number four, they should not be allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, by the way, that's why it's, it's often called excommunication. Ex means out, commune. See the word communion? We often talk about Lord's Supper as communion. That means they're, they're out of communion with God, therefore they're not allowed to partake of communion or Lord's Supper. In fact, John Calvin, when he was in Geneva, he took this so seriously. One day some libertines, some people who were living in sin, unrepented sin, walked in through the doors of the church open, walked down the aisle. John Calvin was about to distribute the elements for the Lord's Supper. He saw these guys, who he had dealt with before, brandishing their swords, walk into the church. In fact, John Calvin walked right in front of the Lord's table, stood between these guys and their swords, and he said, you will not partake of these elements over my dead body. And these guys threatened him. They were about to kill him. John Calvin was willing to die not allow these libertines to partake of the Lord's Supper. That's how serious many people of, of faith have taken this issue. Now, fortunately, he didn't die at that point. <laughs> fortunately, the libertines walked out rather angrily. And they did not partake of the Lord's Supper. And they shouldn't have. They were living in unrepentant sin. We need to take it that seriously. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, some have died, some have been sick as a result of partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You need to take it seriously. You need to take other, when, when other people are coming, you need to take it seriously with them as well. Number five, what do we do with these people? Well, we reveal true love for the wayward person. We reveal true love for the wayward person. We show love. 2 Thessalonians 3, again, the, the context we looked at earlier about keeping away from this brother, it says this, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He's not an enemy. She is not an enemy. You're to treat that person in this age, you're warning him as if that person is still a Christian. Next question is then, well, how do we know if somebody's repented? What are the evidences of biblical repentance? Uh, the word repentance literally means a change of mind in regard to my sin. Before someone repents, they love their sin. They don't see their sin as God sees it. But when someone repents, then they now see their sin as God sees it, and they, they change their mind, which is going to lead to a change in action in life. So let me give you five points to consider quickly here. Number one, somebody who repents is going to acknowledge 
their sin honestly, just as David did in Psalm 51. David recognized he had sinned against God, he had sinned against Uriah, he had sinned against Bathsheba, he had sinned against his own wives and family and and everybody else. And so he acknowledged his sin. Number two, he will stop the sinful behavior which started the discipline in in the first place. So you're going to forsake your sin. You're not going to keep doing it. Number three, this individual will seek biblical counsel if needed to gain victory over sinful patterns. Sometimes we need accountability. In fact, probably all the time we need accountability. We need that. That's the way God has designed His church so that we are accountable to one another. We edify one another. We build one another up. Stir one another up to love and good works. And sometimes there needs to be financial restitution. Not always, but sometimes. If you've stolen, for example, from somebody, you need to make financial restitution with interest. Number five, what are the biblical evidences of repentance? Well, this individual will initiate confession and will ask forgiveness from all parties involved. All parties involved. I love that uh, some of you have seen the, the movie Flywheel. I love in the movie, that, that Christian movie Flywheel, where uh, Jay Austin, he's, he's sinned against people by ripping them off. He's made them pay more for their used cars. Even the pastor, he ripped the pastor off. Several thousand dollars more than he should have paid for that car. And I love, I love in the movie how he repents of his sin. He asks... He confesses his sin to God, and then he realizes, I need to make restitution. So he, he somehow is able to gather some, some money, and then he goes around town to all these people who he has to pay them back. He's just dreading doing this. He hates doing this. And it's, it's really funny in the movie, because some of the people thought, you know, I remember one girl in the movie, she's like, Woohoo! I won! I won! No, you didn't. I'm paying you back. I stole from you. Don't you understand? Woohoo! I won! You know, she's not getting it. Some people are angry. Some were happy. At first, he, was, he thought he was going to have to eat humble pie. He tells his wife, this isn't as bad as I thought. And then he goes and meets those dear old ladies. <laughs> and they're just beating him up verbally and physically. I love that. And sometimes that might happen. Restitution, you're going to have to eat humble pie. It's not easy. But that's what God wants us to do. But what do you do when disciplined individuals repent and seek reconciliation? Remember, the goal is restoration and reconciliation. That's the goal. That's what we need to be longing for, praying for, seeking. Hopefully that's going to happen. So what do we do? Well, i got three R's. Sorry, three R's for you. These aren't original with me. Nothing's original with me. But anyway, what do we do? We rejoice. We rejoice. And and you can see that even in the parable of the lost sheep in in the previous context here in Matthew 18. What do we do? Even the angels in heaven are rejoicing. Verse 13, Matthew 18, 13, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. (laughs) Heaven rejoices over sinners who come seek restoration. Number two, 
reconcile. What do you do? You reconcile. In other words, you reestablish your relationship with the, this prodigal son who has returned. You remember in the story of the prodigal son, what did the father do? Did he beat his son up and say, you idiot, you, know, you, you, took, you, you, you took your inheritance, you went away, you spent it, you wasted it. What were you thinking? Did he beat him up? No, in fact, he's standing there looking for his son to return. And when his son returns, he loves him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He kills the fatted calf. He puts the robe on him. He's restored. There's reconciliation. Number three, reaffirm. Someone repents and seeks reconciliation, you reaffirm. What's going on here in Matthew 18 is we're experiencing the end of the story in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, you deal with the immoral man who's had relations with his father's wife. Remember that in 1 Corinthians? The church was proud. They were arrogant. They weren't dealing with the immoral man in the church. And so Paul says, kick him out of the church. Hand him over. Deliver him over to Satan for the deliverance of his soul. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul, Paul again apparently talks about this guy. Evidently, this immoral man repented of his sin while he's out there in the pig pen of life. He made his desire known to rejoin the fellowship of the believers. So apparently, the discipline worked. Look what 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6 says it's on the screen. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You see the word reaffirm, therefore our third R, reaffirm. Reaffirm your love for that individual. Okay, If they've repented and they're seeking reconciliation, then love the person as you would want to be loved. You know? in, in true forgiveness, you don't bring sin up again. You don't continually beat the dead horse, so to speak. You move on. Well, what is the conclusion of the whole matter? Well, Jesus gives us the conclusion, which we haven't really talked about much. Starting in verse 18, we see that Jesus actually concludes this discussion on church discipline, this loving confrontation by emphasizing that when a healthy church enacts discipline, it does so on behalf of God himself, and they do it with God's approval. We have God's authority behind us in this process. Look what Jesus says here in Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So remember, the context is church discipline. We have God's authority behind us as we obey His commands. And so when the Lord's procedure is followed correctly, the decisions of the church actually correspond to the decisions of heaven itself. We're agreeing with what God is saying. Wow, that's, you think about that for a moment, that is really powerful. 
Well, I want you to notice the following warning that was issued by John Calvin as he's alluding to this process of confrontation in church discipline. So I'll use this quote as kind of wrapping this session up. Look what John Calvin says. I quote, it's on the screen. If no society or even a moderate family can be kept in a right state without discipline, much more necessary is it in the church whose state ought to be the best order possible. Hence, as the saving doctrine of Christ is the life of the church, so discipline is as it were its sinews. For to it is owing that the members of the body adhere together each in its own place. Wherefore, all who either wish that discipline were abolished, or who impede the restoration of it, whether they do this of design or thoughtlessness, certainly aim at the complete devastation of the church. End quote. My friends, do you, do you see the serious warning that Calvin's giving us here? Both pendulum swings are wrong. We should not neglect, we should not abolish. We should not impede the restoration of a believer. So, rather than tearing down our church by either ignoring the problems, or we can also tear down the church by uh, wrongly handling individuals in a worldly manner, may we build up our church by confronting one another in love. May God give us the grace to do that.